Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. John, how are you brother? Chris, how are you? Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. I can say. Um, I'm tell you what I'm going to do, John. If, uh, I don't. I, I'm not big for introductions because people always think these are interviews and they're not interviews. This is my podcast. Is me chatting to my mate about stuff we find interesting, <laughs> stuff we've both maybe done. And you're yeah. certainly a man that um, your resume, shall we say. <laughs> It makes Rambo, it puts Rambo to shame. And we will come on to Rambo um, shortly. But just in, in a short, um, just a short synopsis, we'll, we'll, we'll pick out all, all the details as we go. But you've been on the SAS selection. You've been a Royal Marines commando. Um, you're at the you're top of your game in the, in the fight game. So we're talking jujitsu and all this stuff that's becoming really um popular now shall we start in the be- beginning what what was ch- childhood like for, for you john uh, it's all right bit, bit bit boring bit dull nothing really going on um and as, as we discussed earlier you know i, I went around a friend's house and uh he said we got to watch this film first blood and uh I thought, yeah, okay, let's watch that. And um, it was this this amazing kind of film. Um, and obviously John Rambo remains in post as my sort of uh, this amazing character, this, this inspiration. So that's where it started, really. Um, that film, there, let's just talk about it because I'm, I'm, maybe some of our younger friends out there probably don't know what we're talking about, but it was the first Rambo film, wasn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. This, uh, this Vietnam vet, obviously, uh, sort of comes home to, to visit a friend um, and the local sheriff sees him as a, as a vagrant, tries to, you know, sort of kick him out, uh, arrests him, and it all goes, goes south from there. But, um, I couldn't say I sort of identified with the, the character, um, but I just thought that's that's what a cool guy, you know. He's um, a Green Beret. I didn't know what a Green Beret was, but Special Forces that sounded cool. And then he does the uh, has that big scrap in the prison. And I was just like, I want to be able to do that, um, you know. He just just trashes everyone. I, I quite like the idea of getting um, being a prisoner of war. Because I thought, imagine if you could tell people you've been a prisoner of war, um, you know, you've got scars and you've got, you know, obviously PTSD. It just sounded, um, you know, that that would get the party going, wouldn't it? If you could walk in and just say, Do you know. <laughs> so that was uh, that was my, my sort of first thoughts. If I could be like him, I could be quite interesting. And back then, it was all on it was VHS video, wasn't it? Unless you were lucky yeah. enough to to go to the cinema and I would have been too young to go and watch it because I was only about 14 or something at the time. Uh, but you waited for the video shop to get the next and they used to get one video like a week or so, one new and everyone 
where kids would look in the video yeah, shop window. It. You could book it for like a Thursday, as long as you know, if you go in and you can go collect it. <laughs> And, uh, book, and they used to phone, phone you up and go, um, Mr. Thrall, yeah, you've still got the um, super bus out. Are you, are you going to bring that back anytime today? Because we've got someone here in the shop, they want it. <laughs> it There's someone waiting in the shop for it, yeah. All right, I'll be down in 10 minutes. <laughs> I've just got to finish my dinner. <laughs> so, that, so there comes this film, First Blood. And back then, videos had something about them that, that they don't have now. I don't know if it's the fact that they, all this kind of video thing was new or, or, but they, you know, an adventure film was an adventure film. Yeah, yeah. Now it's all too much. It's too many bells and whistles and clever CGI and, and the, the, the characters aren't, there's no real you, you know well, I mean I remember a major they, everyone was talking about it at school and they said there's a scene where he stitches his arm up and the scene where the guy gets um he gets hit with the uh, with the snare and it's like you've got to see this film and um when I see him stitching his arm up it's just like because it looked real it looks so real because obviously when you see films now it's it's kind of like you you know it's well made up and or it's a special effect, whereas, whereas that, it just, and again, at that age, at 14, it's real, you know, you, you, you buy it, it's, um, you know, and you can rewind it, you rewind it, and it, the picture goes all grainy and that, and you watch it again. <laughs> there was a lot of controversy, John, with that film. When, they, when it was pitched to Hollywood, um, it was like, what, you want to make a film about a veteran that shoots up, town no it's got to be like they've got to be a hero they and it's like yeah, yeah. no no you don't understand this is a real okay the film's not real but this is a real struggle returning veterans went through after yeah. vietnam um obviously many with 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 trauma ptsd and um i think this was the probably one of the first films ever wasn't it that that actually um looked at the veteran story. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Stallone, obviously, um, he, he was a serious actor. He'd, he'd won an Oscar, didn't he? So it was, although he's kind of an action star, he's an action, he's a very serious subject, but, um, and they said at the end of the day, I, I, he shoots one person, doesn't he? He shoots the sheriff at the end. But other than that, it's, it is kind of, it is an action film, but it does address a lot of things that, uh, quite sort of relevant today, but um, so it still gets quite a serious, um, a good rating. Whereas maybe Rambo Two didn't. It was that's an out and out action film, and uh, but but that first one generally is, is the test of time, isn't it? So um, so yeah, it was um, a good start. It was a good start. I've got a copy in HD all ready to go for my boy right but my girlfriend won't let him watch it yet and, and like yeah i get it i i, I get it but it, yeah is it if you yeah it's just such a great film that you'd want to watch yeah. with your son but my boy's just still a bit bit too you know they don't understand they don't understand the context at that age of violence do they and i i, I don't want him to grow up thinking that's normal 
son, just go and bring down a chopper with a rock, will you? <laughs> <laughs> you can do your own first aid, you know? So it's, Yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm often sewing myself up. I think I have I ever had to do that? No, I had to give myself I got uh, some anti rabies um injections after I got attacked bit like Ollie Ollerton, I got attacked by a monkey and it ripped all my back up. It was in yeah. India and uh, nicked my pomegranate, he did. <laughs> and I, had to, I thought I was being quite Rambo. They gave me like six rabies shots that I had to take, right? Right. Wouldn't get me to take an <laughs> injection now. I but back then. blisters in training. You, you do your blisters with the iodine? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah I thought that was pretty hardcore. Yeah, you just sort of grit your teeth, hey, bite hey. down something, you know. Royal Marines training is pretty, <laughs> funnily enough, it is pretty hardcore. <laughs> Not quite first blood, but it was uh, close. So, it was close. So, John, you did the, the you did a couple of weekends on the SAS selection as a as a um, a, civi um, a civilian. Is that the right? Yeah, so I mean, up until that point, I was in. I've been in the cadets. So after first blood, I joined the army cadets, and I was in it for about um, well, about six years really. And um, but I, really, I thought I've got to do something a bit more, um, you know, real. I didn't want to commit full time, and obviously, I thought the SAS was was my calling. Um, I didn't want to join the regular army and go that route. So. Um, yeah, I just I applied. You go down to so this is ninety one, July ninety one. Went down to Chelsea Barracks, and up until then, I'd never seen an SAS guy in the flesh. And um, as we were all waiting, the, the guys come out. They're all there's they're, all TA guys, and uh, yeah, you just think, wow, mega cool. Says wearing the berets, the um, the jungle lightweights, the blue stable belt. It looked mega cool. Um, and I thought this is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna join these boys, and then we did a three mile run, and I thought I can't join these because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fit enough. But it was a really, um, it was just a great day. I did, I did pass the the, the run, but um, you did I think a mile and a half as a troop, which I'd never. You know, again, I've been in the cadets for years, but you know, you're not. This is a different different league, obviously. And then you do a mile and a half on your own. It's a really hot day, I remember. I hadn't drunk enough. I was completely unprepared. Uh, I, I, I crawled in. Um, and then as, as a result of that, you go, you go forward. And then we did a, a weekend. I don't know where it was. It was um, just like an army base um, somewhere. And it's just a weekend of, of, of physical tests. And again, I was... I was just way out of my depth. Um, it, was, it, was, it was funny because so many things that happened. Um, um, so I remember we was, we was in a, like a dormitory and opposite me there was a guy that turned out to be a, an ex-Royal Marine, uh, Fusilier PTI. And he looked the part. He was, he was pretty ripped. Had like a Ron Hill vest, Ron Hill shorts, these Nike Air trainers. And I looked in my locker. Um, he had he had all these like Lucasade power drinks and that. And I looked in my locker. I had like a pair of cut down shorts, these terrible night cross trainers, 
and two Snickers bars. That was my preparation. And I thought I should be more like that guy. But anyway, um, and, and funny enough, I didn't realise at the time, but this, this guy comes in and um, introduced himself. And I just, he, looked, he looked a little bit odd. Um, he was wearing sort of combat trousers, had a little pot belly. Um, he's wearing braces to keep his combats up. And I thought a real sort of dad's army look to him. And he, his beret was just not a very good shaped beret, but SAS. Um, but he introduced himself as Rusty. And it was Rusty Furman, but I didn't know who he was. But I, I just remember the Fusilier guy kind of nodding in kind of, you know, reverence. Uh, and I, again, I, I paid no further attention to it. Anyway, he introduced himself. He was just basically running the stores or something. Um, but that was my introduction to, you know, Rusty Furman, I think, at the time. But, yeah, we just did this this mental, for me, completely mental fizz weekend. And that just kind of... Um, Obviously wiped everyone out, wiped me out. But I'd, I'd only really failed on a run. So, again, you, I think you, you can reapply. But I just realised that um, if I was going to do this, I'm going to have to do some proper um, sort of fizz and that. But I had the PRC. The Royal Marines PRC was um, in the September. So... That was, was that, a big was that o- Overall, I know you only did the two weekends, but just matching the two against each other was the prc harder or e- easier no prc was harder but only in terms of because you're there just to let's say you do 60 push-ups whatever the tests there's a swim but it's like well you do it or you don't you know we weren't running around because it's all civilians so it was it was a very laid-back weekend but um i mean i did notice i was i was with lots of fit guys lots of runners and that you could just tell again all wearing a proper kit um but it was it was a july day it was so hot so i remember i mean i i was on the last you had it, it kind of finished with an eight mile run four mile one way and four mile back and these guys shot off all the the, the, the snakes and that but as i was coming back and I, I was wasted i had cramp in both legs i was just walking really um, but there's about five or six guys that had gone down and the guys were all getting drips and that. And a lot of these were the, the, the guys that I thought, blimey. Um, I thought there was going to, you know, they, they shot off, they look uh, super fit and that. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that, that um, it, was, it was a do it or don't. Whereas the PRC is, you're all scum. I don't know why you're here. So you're going to thrash the crap out of you. Um, and you know, and it's three days long, isn't it? So, so it, it's physically much, much harder. But the, the the TA thing was really just a practice, just getting rid of guys, you know. Then obviously they'll get to a point where what they've got are the guys that will probably, you know, uh, go on. But I, at the time, I was not one of them guys. But it was um, it was funny. Wow. So how was your time in in the corps? That was really good, you know. It's um, uh, I was in, so I I I left training, uh, went straight to support company anti tanks, and uh, which back then it was a bit, you know, um, it was lucky to get support company because support company is not mega cool, and 
because normally it's seen as a bit of the old sweats. You know, you, you do your grav time and then you'll go to support company when you look a bit older than that. But I got in there um, straight away um, and, yeah, re- but enjoyed it. You know, the, obviously you meet a lot of characters in training, but when you get to the unit, that's when you meet, you know, the real kind of um, oddball, sort of uh, bizarre, uh, you know, very unpredictable um, massively violent. <laughs> yeah, I was going to so, say let, let's let's point out some of them are <laughs> fucking scary, scary individuals. You got to you got to hope they like you. Put it that way. Well, support company again. You just got um, you got them all in there. You know, I mean, tanks was great. I mean, we used to laugh at mortars because mortars you tend to get. Um, were you, you know, the are, you, are we talking four two, John? Yeah, yeah, forward to yeah. So that's Plymouth, folks. Yeah. My, my, my old unit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I went... Yeah, no, no. It's, it's, it's mega cool, isn't it? You just meet you just meet these guys that have done, obviously, they've done the train, they've been in the units, they're hanging about. And, again, the funniest, you know, the the, the proper funniest times of your life are, well, are is within that group, you know. That's what I found. It's... Uh, it's cool. You would have joined there in what ninety three? Ninety two. So we got there. Do yeah, you October remember? 92. Were you there when there was the incident where the bouncers on one of the nightclubs on Union Street put one of the guys in intensive care, and then the whole unit went downtown on mass and. Um, for, for people listening, I'll just tell you the story because it's quite fascinating. So there's a Marine in a nightclub. It, 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 I, I used to remember the name. It's too long ago now. But it was a big nightclub in Plymouth. One of the ones been there for years under various different names. And one of our guys was in there and the bouncers set upon him and they beat him like unconscious and he ended up in intensive care. So the next weekend... The whole of 4-2 Commando, we're talking hundreds of guys just descended on that nightclub en masse and they're all lined out on Union Street shouting, 4-2, 4-2, 4-2. The bouncers were stood outside trying to look hard, you know, like you're not going to intimidate us. And then someone just shouts, Charge! And everyone ran for the door and the bouncers weren't quick enough to shut the door. The guys got inside and they just ripped these, pulled these guys into the street and beat the shit out of them. The police turned up. So then the guys beat the shit out of the police. (laughs) This is a, some, if, if, if anyone, if anyone can expand upon this, I might have got a few details wrong. One of my best friends who's no longer with us now, but, um, was 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 there and the the dossier of the court case against him was that thick and he got off on a technical there was some technicality the mayor of plymouth or the the uh, probably more likely the the police inspector spoke to the co at 42 and said i want names and then the C- you you know how it works in the military it just comes down the shit just comes down then because you know 
a true Marine would say, you, you ain't getting names, go and, go and do your job, you know. But you got that compliance streak in the military where they were like, right, we want names, men. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the mistake that they made, quite unprofessional for commandos, is they left the camera that was on an overhead bridge looking down at the night nightclub, the, ca the camera, the first thing they should have done was gone and put yeah. a camera. I'm, I'm not suggesting violence, folks, but... Um, but if, if you were... You know, if, if I was to suggest <laughs> violence, sort the camera out first, <laughs> then... But, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, John, I'm stealing your thunder, but that, that, was, <laughs> that was just a historic moment in 4-2 history. And, uh, well, there was a few. There was a few. I, I wasn't there for that one, but, um, I mean, Union Street is just, just a crazy place, isn't it? You know, I was involved in a few things there. Um, but, yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, just a... Did you? Cool I was, I'm going to say, did you drink a lot when you were there? But that's pretty much a redundant question, isn't it? I think we all <laughs> we all drank a lot, uh, but not not really to excess. I never have. Um, so you know, I wasn't one of those guys. You know, Monday to Friday, sort of drinking. Um, I'd go home at the weekend. So I lived in Essex, um, so I'd rarely go out. Yeah, unless there was a reason to sort of go out, I, I wasn't like, um, you know, obviously when you go away, you, you do. Um, but no, no, no one would recall me as, um, you know, a, a unit fish, not at all. No. It was a real thing though, wasn't it? I, I can remember, just talking about it, the feeling comes over me again of that eye in your shirt, Get on the bus down, you know. Get get yourself downtown. You you got to know all the girl, you know, all the sort of the cool girls or whatever. And I mean, my experience is we would just drink to get freaking shit faced, and there was always that excitement of not coming home, not having to go back to Barrett's because you messed, you you pulled, you pulled, so, pulled you a bird, trapped. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and it was just that the places that you woke up at could be quite, I mean, I even got kicked out of a, got kicked out of a car once. Um, she went, you're too pissed. Fuck off. <laughs> it's like, it was a, it was a, a mini driving down the embankment and they, they pushed me out. But yeah, I remember that, that whole sense of going ashore and the excitement that you don't know where this night's, going to end up Did on the uh, well, I mean at the weekends if I did stay down I mean most guys would, would go out at, at midday and just start and again almost like 12 hours drinking and unbelievable I mean I, I had very little drinking sort of prowess at all but I remember going out with a guy called Dave Pollitt who's um super fit guy um used to play a lot of football um, little little mank guy he's still in now I think and um, we went out and he was going to go out for I think a 12k run with another guy this guy Andy Murray um, he was getting ready for selection I said well if we go out I mean you've got to take it easy on the beer because you've got to run with Andy and he said oh, I won't let him down and we went out and I think I, I must have had about nine pints which for me was way out there and Dave was about three, at least three or four in front. 
and I, I crashed and he, he carried on in town. He trapped, um, he brought the girl back and he was wasted. And yet in the morning, I think he come in and give me a knock about seven and he was ready to go for a run. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm out of Andy. I said, there's no way you're going to do it. And he did it. He said, and when he come back, he said, well, I was sick halfway through, but he still did the, uh, and it's like, I mean, back then, the guy's kind of resistance to that kind of lifestyle is incredible, how you could drink that amount and do, obviously, a guy's going for selection the next day, so he's going to be running at some heavy pace. He still did it. Uh, and that's the kind of fitness the, the core has, isn't it, you know, some of these guys. So um, I definitely was not one of those. I couldn't... Uh, I can do that. So I would drink till I was drunk, but but no more really. And let's just um, let's peel back a bit to to your training, John, because I know um, as we spoke before, this Sergeant Sid McCarthy, who was quite a well known name in the corps, had quite an effect on you. Can do you want to explain what that how that came about? Yeah, it's just my time in training. So I, I was in the cadets, and when I joined the corps. Um, I, I basically nothing really went right for me for, for quite a number of weeks. I was not the fittest guy in the gym. I was terrible. Uh, I wasn't great at doing ropes. And I was probably just um, a bit cocky, really, uh, but with nothing to sort of back it up with. So that I think the first four weeks, my training team corporal thought I was a bit of a character, so he was fine. Um, and I kind of stayed under the radar. But then uh, he moved on to do a, a junior's. And the new corporal come in, who essentially was a very professional kind of um, guy. He didn't didn't see my sense of humour at all, and really my car was marked until week twenty one. So we did hold fast, and uh, I mean I, I hadn't I'd never failed a run, I'd never failed anything. I just kind of plodded through, but I was always I've been on section commanders warning, troop officers commanding warning. Brigadier General Commanders, you know, I was constantly on this kind of tightrope of warnings. Um, and really, for nothing in particular, just... just um, I'm going really... to put you on a podcast warning, John, just, just so, we, <laughs> just so we're all, we know where we stand. Thrall, thrall warning, yeah. <laughs> Might as well. I, um, you name it, I had that warning. And Lance, so, uh, Lance, Lance Corporal thrall warning. <laughs> and... I've done hold fast and hold fast is, is, is probably one of the hardest exercises. You know, you're not sleeping, you're just digging holes, but there's nothing to fail really. But I failed it allegedly. Um, Can so we just talk a bit for the people at home? Cause hold fast is, it's an exercise like no other. It's none of the running around the woods, firing off blanks, pretending that you're Rambo. It's digging in. You, you, well, John, you, you can explain. It's just, um, it's, yeah, it's like a trench, you just dig a trench, don't you? But, you know, it's, it's sold to you as a quite a relaxing week in the field. All you've got to do is dig a hole, um, stay in it, and you'll go out and patrol, um, and then, you know, if all goes well. And, and they assured us if, if you're doing a good job, the trains will leave you alone because it's actually, you know, you're an operational kind of trench position. And, uh, you know, you get, like, obviously, it's it's just crazy, isn't it? You're just digging, basically just hacking into like industrial concrete for the first day, 
with you know, prehistoric weaponry to kind of do that. Um, so you, you, your hands are blistered. Um, it's just crazy. And you, you don't sleep. So you don't sleep. You're just digging a hole. And in between that, you're doing NBC drills and you just run in. And I mean, it's you're just covered in sores. Uh, you don't sleep. I remember when we finished the exercise, it's a long weekend. So um, I got on the train back to Essex. I fell asleep. I, I ended up in South Ends, you know, because you're absolutely just completely wasted. Um, but yeah, I come back on the um, on that weekend. Um, and up until then, funny enough, which is another dip completely, but I, I kept failing the BFT on the ropes. But on that morning, I had a BFT re- retest and I, I did it. So I was like, awesome, went back, uh, corporal wanted to see us. I kind of marched in there, proper cocky, because he kept saying, if you don't do that BFT, you're out. And uh, I just said, just, just before we start, <laughs> passed the BFT and went, right, well, your battery's anyway. So I was like, oh, and um, that was it. So anyway, I got battery. I went to another, uh, back uh, two weeks. I had to do hold fast again. So, you know, again, I had this extra month. And um, so anyway, failed hold, hold fast again. Same thing. I got this obviously issue with digging holes. But really, again, the corporal, he knew his back trooper. He had no time for me. He just said, yeah, you failed the, failed the exercise. So that was it. So by then, I, I pretty much had enough of the core. Um, and I was all I was quite happy to go to the next one, next next troop, and just just pack it all up really. But I'd spoken to a friend of mine who was ex Falklands guy, and um, I said, "What do you think? What should I do?" And I was hoping he'd say, "Just bin it. Don't you know? Obviously, the core's not for you. Um, just just make make yourself a nuisance, really." But he didn't. He just said, "Look, um, if if you don't if you don't give it hundred percent on this next troop, and you." You get kicked out. You will never know. You always look back and just say, "What could have been?" And you know, and and really, he'd never said a sensible word before or since. But that was the one time in his life he probably said something that was quite sort of motivational. So I joined six three five troop um, on field firing, and um, I was all good to go. Uh, and we ended up, funny enough, as we we got dropped off by Fort Turner and the troop was getting thrashed. So I thought, oh, great, straight into a thrashing. But um, Sid come up to us, troop, troop sergeant. He, he just come across okay, like not the usual use fuckers want to, you know, that sort of thing. It was like, uh, well, you know, you're here, uh, make the best of it. And uh, But he, he just said, if you need anything, let me know. Oh, okay. Um, so that was it. So I thought, oh, seems an all right bloke, but um, that was it. So anyway, we, we we did a day. So the following day, we had um, an inspection, and I just remember it would be all our kit was soaking wet, but my weapon was immaculate. And they asked to see the bayonets, and I just thought, oh my god, because I hadn't re- we hadn't been issued bayonets up until that point, and I hadn't I hadn't even looked at it. I thought if he looks at it, it's gonna it's gonna be rusty. It has to be. So anyway, this corporal I showed him the bayonet and it was it was clean. I 
thought, oh, thank God for that. And then he turned it over and it was, it was orange, you know. And I've been charged already for a, a rusty weapon um, earlier in training, you know, for that microscopic bit of rust, which I thought was very unfair. But this, I, I had no kind of, I hadn't, I hadn't even looked at it. So I got flanked. I thought, that is it, I'm done. And um, I don't know what happened. Anyway, so we, we, we went out in the range and I, I proper had enough of it by now. I just thought, I'm screwed. So, but what I will do, I'll just, I'll have a chat with this sergeant and just explain. So he was walking up and I was a bit, I wasn't rude, but I just said, uh, you know, my Sarge. And he turned around and he went, yes, mate. But it seemed quite a pleasant, yes, mate. And then it kind of like disarmed me a little bit. And I said, oh, uh, I've had a really bad start to this troop. And, you know, I, I can only assume based on what's happened, I'm going to get kicked out. So what's the point, you know? And he just said, well, all right, it's a bad start, but do well today, give it your all today, and we'll see where we are. I thought, okay, you know. And um, so late, late in the day, we had to do a, just, just a field firing. He's got to run, isn't he? Run, shoot things and throw a grenade. It's not hard work. And he was doing the sort of fire control, and I'm running, and... Again, not really doing anything I wouldn't have done anyway. And he's just shouting, he's going, that's it, good effort, good effort, Egan. And and like, I'm listening to it, I think, oh, I must be doing something really good here. And at the end, I throw the grenade and that's it, nothing special. And so we had this sort of debrief and um, he's there and he just said, oh, and again, just, oh, you know, lads did really good. And the troop boss was there. And he said, but I want to give a special mention to recruit Hegan. He, he did outstanding lead today, did everything right and blah, blah, blah. But just really made it up. I hadn't done anything, but just kind of made it, made a very sort of standard fire control as if I had done this amazing job, as if I was some sort of like, you know, SF operative. And honestly, like everything really turned on that afternoon. So... The rest of the day went really well. Obviously, you get a good... Um, but then the troop accepts you, because up until then, I was just this back trooper. And then it's like, well, you know, you've done well today, you know, whatever. And um, But then the troop boss obviously thought, oh, he's all right. And, um, yeah, everything like, really turned on that. So, um, really, the rest of the week went well. And then, I don't know, no nothing went wrong. Um, my fitness, by then... Had, had was was pretty good and so all the tests we did I never sort of struggled with um but you know I, I, I put it back to that if, if he had turned around and not said no oh, yes mate and if he'd have turned around and, and being like the usual troop striper you know who the fuck are you talk who are you calling sarge or whatever I think I'd have just just sort of um yeah. on it so you know um that was it and you know obviously people won't know what happened but I finished training really well um, and then joined 4-2. Um, and I said to, when we had the uh, the drink at the end, you know, I, I said to him, you know, honestly, that day, big, big, big sort of moment and that. And he was like, okay, whatever. Um, didn't mean much to him, but he was quite happy with it. And then when we was at 4-2, one of the guys uh, come over and, and said, have you heard about Sid? I was like, no, what's, what's up? And he said, he's dead. Mm. 
And I said, you know, you're joking because you say that, don't you? You know, um, it's, a, it's a good joke. He said, no, he's, he's playing football. He's gone in for a sliding tackle or something. He's knocked himself out, choked on his tongue. This is the story we got told him and that had a massive heart attack. So, so, so that was it, really. Um, you, know, um, you know, for me, for me personally, a top bloke uh, really made a big difference. And, you know, um, I've caught up with a lot of people over the years, like through Facebook and that, but, you know, um, back, well, I didn't obviously know it then, but I'm never going to meet the guy again. So like a really sort of good story, a positive story, but unfortunately with a you know, very sad ending to it all. It's the thing, isn't it? When you've got 7,000 brothers, you lose, you, you know, you, you, you get subjected to losing, I would say the odd one. It's not, but it's not even the odd one or two, is it? It's quite, quite Hello. a reg, regular thing that someone you knew so well could even be, you know, like Steve that you lived with, we, he, I slept in this bed for a year and he was in that one there, got run over by a truck, you know, fell off the motorbike, got run over by a truck. It was just done. Um, and it's in, in the core, it's like, yeah, do you hear about Steve? No, what's up? Dead. Mm. It's like that, dead. Oh, and in fairness to our youth, we just take it on the chin, don't we, and just crack on. It's, it's, it's not, I don't know. Um, we, we was out in, um, we was mountain training and uh, the word come through. One of our guys was out in Brunei, this guy, Kenny Dixon. Uh, he got tonsillitis. That then led to septicemia and he died, died in Brunei. So it was all like, and Kenny was, again, the nicest guy. He was a guy, do anything for you. Just such a super dude. And, um, at 4-2, it was a four-man grot. So very cramped. When we got back from mountain training, they'd taken the bed out. <laughs> and it, it was just like, okay. So we didn't even have his bed to kind of sort of work. That's where Kenny used to be. So, yeah, we're back to three. And, and yeah, you kind of, that was it. Mm. So, yeah, very kind of a bit cold, but I don't know. But, yeah, that is the core. Yeah, well, it's it's, you know. See, again, I've said this a few times recently, you, you, better to live like a lion, isn't it, than, than better to die like a lion than live like a coward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's, you know, we were living our lives and, you know, when you live that kind of military rock and roll, <laughs> it's it ends in tears now and again. Because it's mega risky, isn't it? I mean, the amount of accidents. So even if, you, if you're not at war, the amount of serious accidents you get in training every time you go on deployment some guy will get trashed uh you know career ending injuries you know um uh you know we had had a lot had a lot of guys it's um and you don't really think about it you know we the, the great threat for us was northern islands um but really most of the the casualties you get were in, you know, these like mental training accidents, you know, so there's a lot of guys. I, I knew three people that committed suicide while I was in. Really? You know, fucking tragedies. Both to be surrounded by brothers. How can, how can someone get, be allowed to get that, you know, 
isolated. It was, I guess, yeah. people just, I mean, mental health was really, I'm sure it's a lot better understood now, especially with Afghanistan and, and Iraq. But back then it was just sort of laughed at, you know, people didn't really, they just didn't get it. And, um, yeah, you're weak. You're weak. Yeah, you're weak. Yeah. You're, you know, you're, you're a laughing stock. You're this sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, one, one guy blew his head off with his SE80 while he, while he was on guard duty. So, well, that guy was in my troop. Oh, really? You know, he was called Revo Allen. Mm. So he started with 633. And, um, you would, with all the work that I've done subsequently, with the, like the young offenders and that, you would say he was, he was a troubled lad. So he was very young, I think he was 17, 18, but he was not cut out for the core. Um, so I, I was a bit of a, I was sarcastic, that was my kind of thing a little bit. And But he, he didn't like the authority, he couldn't get the authority. And they gave him a hard time, so he got kicked out on field firing about uh, week six, I think, but they hated him. And but he was a quite a difficult lad to get to like, because he would make, again, he'd be one of those, uh, you know, if you're all doing push-ups, waiting for, for the guy that's late, it would be him. And he would come out and say, well, fucking don't wait for me. But it's like, well, that's not your attitude. So, but he wasn't unlikable. Um, and he would fall asleep on sentry duty, stuff like that. So he's like, mate, you've got to try and pull it together. Um, so he, I was on my freeze course at Limston. I remember waking up and I looked out and there's all the police called and stuff. And, um, but funny enough, I had seen him. So I think he was, he was doing something. I, I just stopped to have a chat with him at Limston. He he finally passed out because he kept getting back troops. And I was like, mate, done really well and that. And um, he said, yeah, yeah, seemed fine. And then, yeah, so I've done my threes course. And, um, threes is sergeants. Threes. No, thanks. Just done my threes, HW3. Oh, oh, heavy, heavy weapons threes. Sorry, I yeah, had to try and remember all, all the... Yeah, no. So he was, he was probably about nine weeks, ten weeks behind me at least. He had just been, um, I'm trying to think. So I must have seen him, let me put in, so I must have seen him on Final X. I saw him on Final X. I passed out. I was doing two weeks guard duty. That was it. And he, yeah, he had just finished. So it looked like he was going to pass out. All good. And yeah, all good, mate. And then, yeah, when I come back a couple months later, I done me three's course. When, when I woke up, um, they said, oh, some bloke has had an ND. That's what I said at first, like accident. And then obviously it transpired. They said, who was it? It's like, Revo Allen's like, adieu, I knew him. Um, so, and there's all different theories why. He was on, he was taking a lot of, uh, he was a very slightly built lad and was, I reckon he was doing some sort of steroids or doing something, what, whatever. That, that was that was the thing that we were told was that someone had, that his training team had found out he'd been taking steroids and out of sheer, well, you know, you probably would have got kicked out for that in training back back then. I'm sure it's probably diff- a different situation now. I mean, steroids weren't, they weren't illegal 
to take. They were illegal to sell and deal, like on the black market, obviously. But even in the military, there was some profound steroid users. Um, right, an enemy troop. Yeah. Well, no. Well, well. I'm going to say we we I got involved in it off off and on, and I think people would be shocked if they knew the names that you went and got your you went and got your steroids from, or the guys that would go, you want to do a bit of this, mate. We were all into bodybuilding, so it wasn't like an alien thing. And like I say, it wasn't illegal and it wasn't against, there was like no rule for it in the core. Yeah. It was one of those weird ones where, you know, you go from like nine, 10 stone to 13 stone in three months. People no, I wish I'd taken it. It got me up the ropes a bit quicker. So <laughs> people used to just go, God, he's, he's, he's been pumping iron and it was just a it bit is. sort of unknown but the, with, 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 with Reva it was that he'd been found out taking them and someone who grasped into the training team or some such thing yeah. and out of sheer like fear I suppose of I'm going to get kicked out and then he commits suicide but mm. so. nah. yeah uh, John where did you um, where did you go with with your unit then or which units were you just in 14 just say four two so i was i was just really happy there um so i did, did everything if um so we went to done norway done about three norways i think um did northern ireland did the op banner in 94 um belize um, brunei um did the med trip, um, the Purple Star, which was a, a quite a, a famous um, exercise. Which again, the, the, when our first day on Purple Star, there was a terrible helicopter accident. Two two helicopters had collided and killed about twelve US troops, and that's just on exercise. Mm. Now already, Radio, we've got three months of this. What? You know, and um, I, yeah, obviously there's various accidents and that, but yeah, it's um, he's lost. There's a lot of helicopter crashes, aren't there, in the military? Not just look at the Navy SEALs, they yeah, the bin Laden raid, uh, or the alleged bin Laden raid, they crashed one. Then the um, the one that went down was it in Afghanistan that had the yeah. whole, of, whole of the SEAL Team Six that had done that raid that obviously led to a lot of um accusations and suspicions when when they tried to free the hostages in um iran that helicopter went down i mean they are obviously the falklands they lost Mm. i mean yeah if you step on a helicopter it's great fun but (laughs) they are quite dangerous aren't they it's um, but i'm on a helicopter i I just pray it goes down in water because Right. Um, dunker drills, yeah. Yeah, cool. I, I will be safe in the, mi- well, in the mi- middle of the North Atlantic. I remember the first time we dropped into um, Basebrook and it was the first time I'd ever done like an operational descent in a helicopter. So you sat there and you list, you just drop out the sky, don't you? They just, they're just to get down quick. And I didn't know that's going to happen. So for that split second, I thought, I'm, I'm dead, we're all dead. And I remember looking at the air crew guy, just chilling, quite nonchalant, you know. I thought, oh, thank God, it's 
this is what it's supposed to be. When I'm told you, which would have been nice, we, we, you know, we're going to drop out the sky, but um, yeah, no. So yeah, done loads of, um, did everything really before too. Um, did you do in Norway? Yeah, done done three of them, I think. Did two, two Norways, and then I got attached to do a, the MS, MSI. Um, I didn't do the actual course, I was just out there sort of helping out, but it was two, it's like a month of chilling out really, just helping out with stuff, That's so yeah. Ski was, instructor, isn't it? Military ski yeah. instructing. Yeah, that was that was cool. That was a that was a, a very nice um, little trip just before Christmas, a little bit of extra money in that. So. Did you find Norway hard? I found it, I, I found it, I found it really cold. I, did not like the cold. I didn't like getting into your tent. We had tent sheets at first, and we were the first people that moved to, to actual those five-man tents. Might even have been six-man tents. And I just remember you'd get in a tent. Took, it took you about three hours to get the tent up and dig a, a, a wall of snow around it to hide the light and all this. You'd just get your food on, or you maybe you'd get like the first two hours of guard. So you'd be just freezing wishing wishing you were back home having a nice hot drink then you just get in your tent and you're looking forward to getting your scran on and getting in your sleeping bag and it'll be pull pull <laughs> what we've just skied 18 miles now we've got to go again ah and i was i was really young i'd probably really enjoy that sort of thing now but when i was 19 or whatever age i think i was 19 it, it didn't bother me, Norway, because I was, I was a brilliant skier. I was, I think, gifted was uh, what, what I'd class myself as. And if anyone knew me, would say the same, a very gifted skier. Um, I, was, I was hopeless. I was <laughs> complete. God, God did not equip me to ski at all, and I hated it. Um, and I wasn't like a particular, I wasn't unfit, I was pretty I was, I was fit, but if you can't ski, Nor Norwegian skiing, you just end up working twice as hard as everyone else. And um, if, I, if I had skied anywhere for more than maybe 15 metres without falling over, I was quite happy. Mm. And um, I constantly had a sousat smashed in my face when you plant, um, so just awful. Just so I, I didn't actually mind the, the whole cold weather bit, but when it was, um, you know, do any free skiing. So again, ironically, I smashed myself up um, every time we moved somewhere. I had some real bad kind of hits, hit trees and all sorts. And I think most blokes felt sorry for me. But then I did do a downhill ski day uh, once. And I don't know, I was snow plowing at about three mile an hour, probably not even that. And then I picked up too much speed. I panicked. I tried to crash. And uh, my ski got stuck in the snow. I twisted, popped my knee. And um, that was it. I got, I got flown home. Um, so, yeah, me and Norway never really, we didn't grow to love each other, but... Um... Yeah, 
we were lucky. Me, me, and, me and my mate, we took ourselves down Plymouth Dry Ski Slope and we taught ourselves from scratch. Yeah. Just egg it from the top to the bottom, right? And then, of course, you get out to Norway and it's a completely different type of skiing. It's what they yeah. call Lang Langlauf, so it's cross-country, the, the mm, ancient it. sort of Scandinavian skiing. And then, of course, you kind of... It was like you have to go back a bit, but not right back to that novice thing because you, you're used to having these two bits of wood on your feet. So my first ski race, I talk about this in an upcoming podcast that I've done, just about just talking about my own experience. First company ski race, I came seventh, I think, in the whole company. And there was like eight, eight 60 people in the race. Um, I just... Yeah, and I and and I used to use different wax to. I've noticed everyone will put the same wax without really thinking about it. You don't have to put one wax on your ski. You can put put five if you really wanted. If you yeah. knew, and I worked out which bit of my foot your ski would be hitting the snow, and I had a slightly different, slightly say stickier wax on just that bit, and I just went out. <laughs> I was just going track, which means get out my fucking yeah. way i'm coming through um i would dream i would dream of doing that because <laughs> you know. and my weather no, I, I was just a standing joke so i think the, the following norway i was uh designated bv driver so <laughs> i was quite happy with that i was gonna say if you in support troop though didn't is it tanks that get the the skidoos um no we didn't get them they weren't it was all bvs the uh the uh, we had, um, when, when we were in norway it was anti-tanks i believe someone can correct me on this they had um skidoos they might have had them at some point to trial them but it was yes yeah, pretty much you're either on on skis or um yeah it was all the grabs that uh did most of donkey work isn't it but tanks were seen as a you know you're in your nice warm bv so i was quite happy um doing that the second time we done it i mean it's still it's still hard um you still do some sort of crazy stuff don't you um but yeah so me me and norway I, I the jungle i really enjoyed the jungle to be honest so i went to uh went to brunei and that was definitely my my preferred habitat i think because i thought it was like uh, vietnam and what the rambo um sort of connection that just seemed to suit me much more mm. you can't you can't fall over in the jungle can you it's uh which jungle did you say you went to belize went to belize well went to loads of them went to went to brunei did in that uh, initial jwt but we went to um yeah went to belize went to the so Caribbean islands uh, on Purple Star. So we spent a lot of time in those jungles, which was good fun. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, that that to me was um, yeah much better. Which again, for a lot of people, they didn't enjoy the jungle. Don't like being you know dirty all the time and you know the insects and stuff like that. I I thought of thrived in it really. Um, so yeah. yeah, jungle any day. And. Um was your Northern Ireland tour hectic at all, or was would you describe that as? No, no, it's quite mundane. We had 
so we went out there the ceasefire just started about a month before but um so we still went out there with the assumption that it was all going to break down at some point so we we still did everything it was only really the last month that six month tour where they just said you're not going to go out so um it was almost like being on lockdown you was just stuck in besbrook um, i mean uh, prior to that we've been having a lot of fun with that in helicopters fast roping stopping that doing vehicle checks and that and uh, i remember we stopped i think he, he would have been like oc of cross the glen you know as a, a major player and um yeah we fast roped out of a helicopter stopped this car we didn't know it was him and he got out and we, well, we was all a bit starstruck really it's like bloody hell this is this is like the main dude um, of, of, of Cross. But he was very compliant, asked everything, you know, and that was it. He went on his way. Um, so we, we, we all was talking about that for a while. But um, no, um, no dramas, really. No dramas. Must have been hard for, for the paramilitaries over there because they, they're all put out, put out of work overnight, weren't they? Well, we did everything. Um, again, we don't know what the there was a, there was an armed robbery. So we were sat about one day, and the call come in. The ceasefire's over. I think a, a post office worker being shot. They assumed it was paramilitaries, so that's it. We and it's that weird thing, isn't it? It's like the ceasefire's over. Brilliant. <laughs> we can all do stuff. So we all shut out, uh, and it, it, you know, it turned out it was it was just a post office robbery. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the end of the ceasefire at all. Although I think the guy that did it was a known known uh, member, um, but it was just there for for criminal reasons. Um, but yeah, they didn't have anything to do, did they? Um, mm. There was obviously itching to do something, but that was the uh, yeah, that's the end of that. So. Yeah, it was, it was good, a good tour. I wish I um, had done the cut team and that, you know, um, that would have been good fun. But, you know, you look back. Um, so we, we was the, what they call the QRF um, in the helicopters. That was our job. You know, we did everything in helicopters. So that was good. Cut team is intelligence work, isn't it? But, yeah, but, but, the military, but the military guys in the unit that do do it, as opposed yeah. to like joining 14 in. Yeah, no, so you get to have sideboards, long hair, you could have a brown in high power, you could kind of just swan around in civvies. Uh, very cool, you know, probably work with the SF guys and that. Um, so, but we wasn't worthy of being um, connected with them. But like looking back, I thought oh, I should have I should have applied for that, but you know, I didn't. So um, so they they did some good 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 stuff. Mm. But um, yeah, that, that was my tour. That was um, that was it. So let's let's um, talk about the martial arts, mate. How how did that come about? Um, first blood. Because of the because of the combat scene that uh, Rambo did, I thought you know he he had this thing about him being this complete warrior. You know, he's a survivalist. He can shoot. 
but he's also like an unarmed combat proper ninja but also it looked very different to like kung fu films you know he just seemed to be a very uh, scrappy chaotic guy but still smashes everyone up so i started doing a bit of karate when i was 14 but that didn't last um but when i was 18 um I was getting in a few scrapes in the pubs and that and there, there was a few guys that did kickboxing and they seemed to be pretty handy so i thought oh, i got i got to do something like that i got to do something organized so i, I just joined a like a karate type club but um, that seemed really well organized so i just started um doing that and that's when i met a guy who was this uh, ex falklands vet and he was like a second degree black belt but an ex-marine and he seemed pretty handy so i thought wow again um if he's doing this this must be like a really good uh, martial arts so i stuck at that and then i joined the corps that 18 months after, but I was really into martial arts then. Um, and then, yeah, so it was difficult to, in training, you can't do much, but it, it was, that was it really. So from the age of 18 onwards, I've never really not done martial arts. So that's, that's where it started. When you were in the core then, did, did you have to go like downtown to do that? Or was there stuff going on in the core? I would come home at weekends um, but there was a club in Torquay that was the same style and it was a student of my instructor quite by chance. So whilst in Plymouth, I could get up and train twice a week, I think, but there was nothing in the core. Um, yeah, it was, you know, you do your own on combat in training, um, which again, ironically, the whole up until that time, I could not wait. I was thinking it's going to be proper ninja killer stuff that we're going to be doing in training. I was so looking forward to it. And what week was it in? It was week 22. And the morning that we was going to do unarmed combat training was the morning I got back trooped. So I had to go and do, and I was just, I couldn't, I, I didn't want to be there. I just thought, you know, I've been looking, I passed the BFT, so I've done the BFT. Um, pass out, done the rope, high as you like, got back troops, and then, well, you go and do, you know, you said to finish the day, I think, you know, do an on combat training and then um, clear your locker. <laughs> you didn't miss yeah. much, mate. If our well, on combat training was anything to go by, we, we did about two hours, rocked up at the gym, the PTI went. If you ever end up without a weapon behind enemy lines, lads, you're fucked. So yeah. how about I teach you how to hold, hold your end up down a boozer? <laughs> and that was it. And everyone's like, yes. <laughs> that was, a, well, that was sort of like, I was just going to say that was like a bit of a thing in my head when I joined the Marines is right now I'm going to be able to go down a pub and actually like yeah. know how to fight. <laughs> it still never happened. <laughs> I mean, it's a big, big issue with me, and it has been for years. But back then, um, so when I when I got to four two, I had this this great dream of teaching unarmed combat because I felt that I had more kind of um, yeah, I thought that it needed it. So I was I was very lucky. I got to um, um, I went to Hendon. They let me go to Hendon for two weeks. Um, to do the arrest and restraint. Uh, I did an army 
uh, control and restraint course. Um, when you say Hendon, do you mean the police training? Yeah, yeah, they let me do that because it's pre-Northern Ireland training and my OC knew I was into sort of martial arts and that and I was really making a big thing about I think we could really improve armed combat. Now, I wasn't a PTI or anything, I just... Um, so they let me do a few things um, and I, I had this great sort of vision of improving everything. Um, I even did my own sort of manual um, which I thought was was pretty good. Um, I even met Bernie Plunkett. So when we was in Northern Ireland, I kept asking about, I wanted to teach SF. Do you think SF would be interested in doing this? And they said, well, they've got their own guy. And I said, oh, you know, and they said, well, actually, he's here, Bernie Plunkett. And at the time, Bernie was like a proper legend. And um, I said, what do you mean here? He said, well, he's, he's doing some stuff. He was... Um, doing the the, the the undercover stuff and um, I, said, I forget what it was I said well we'll get you to meet him and I did meet him and I, I contacted him the other day I don't think he remembered me but I just said look you know and he just went all through it he said well I'm SC's PTI and, and we do this um, you know we do a bit of this and a bit of that and obviously like Bernie's just like a like a nails bloke isn't he S- SC for our friends at home that's your SBS which yeah. stands for swimmer canoeist, which is what your your um, what not right. What, what, what's the word I'm grasping for? Your SQ in it. Your specialist yes. specialist qualification for that for if you're SBS, it, it, the actual qualification is called swimmer canoeer. So yeah, I just sort of, I just thought, would there be a vacancy for us there? And he was like, well, no, not not really. You know, they do their own thing. But he just said, look, if you if you if you do do selection and um, do it that that way, but um, I, at the time I didn't think that was that feasible. So um, yeah, just sort of, um, and one of the reasons I left the corps was, you know, I wanted I wanted to invent this job for myself, and it was never going to happen. Um, so that's when I sort of decided, okay, uh, I can't, I can't do this job even as as a part time thing. It was just never going to happen, you know. And you know, they've got their own reasons for it. Um, not not that I would have been that qualified anyway, but I certainly had some good experience, you know, working with the police and and that. Um, but that was it. I mean, I even spoke to an SBS captain in in Northern Ireland, and again, he just sort of gave me a bit of a reality check, and he just said, look. Now, when we burst into a room, at the time we got an MP5, if that malfunctions, then you've got your SIG. If that's not working, well, we'll make the best of a bad job. And that was pretty much the attitude. And it's probably not changed that much, although I've got some good contacts. It is, it is changing a lot now. They see the sort of MMA-type way of training does actually work, whereas in my day, it was still pretty much seen as it's just kung fu shit, like you know. So um, that's why I never really took it that serious. I was but. in the um, I was in the heads, so that's the navy term for toilets uh, at Bry's on the, on one of my one of my two parachute courses. And as I'm at the urinal, this SB lad comes in next to me, so S S C S B. And he's all busted out, his nose is all bleeding, he's got black eyes, lips out here. And, and he, he just turned me and went, 
Sometimes you just eat the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a couple of things then. I thought, first off, what are you doing getting in fights in the naffy at Bryce Norton, for frick's sake? You, you should be way above, above that. Yeah. And secondly, of course, I thought, God, I thought you, you, you guys knew how to fight. <laughs> Oh, yeah. People skilled, yeah. No, but I mean, I know lots of um, lots of guys in that industry now, and you know, really, sort of martial arts is it's it's a bit like fishing. You're either into it or you're not. Mm. So, um, so I was talking to like a friend of mine. He's he's X two two, and he has done and been there. You know, he's done it all, uh, operational for over ten years, um, and yet he still calls it Kung Fu, <laughs> still not really interested in it. And, you know, obviously the guy can have a scrap, but nothing structured. And he just said, well, you know, he, he did all that without getting into a fist fight. So as far as he's concerned, it's, it's, you know, if you can, if you can do it, if you're interested in it, then, but you know, more power to you, but it is, you have to be into it to take it that seriously. Um, and if you're not, like I say, you'll just, um, so, you know, most of them blokes, they're tough guys, you know, they, they can sort of have a fight, but, you know, there's, there's a big difference between just being a tough guy that can throw a few right handers and, and being like a technical guy that can you know, get at some really bad positions, especially, you know, if you're the smaller guy, which ironically, when I spoke to this SBS captain, he was about five foot seven and maybe about nine stone, you know, a very, very slightly built guy, but he, he didn't see the, the mileage in it at all so so let's just talk about that because i might put this as a separate little clip because it's kind of pretty boys a boy's own sort of question but can a small guy who knows what he's doing because he's trained in the martial arts have a big guy or does the big guy just have to go like that and um Again, if you if you go back to the first UFC, so the guy that, that won the first sort of ultimate fighting championship was a guy called Horace Gracie. So he was like six one, but probably about twelve stone. So not not small, but certainly not a big fella. And he he was outweighed most fights by at least sort of eighty pounds by some big, big guys. And he used grappling. He got the guy to the ground and was able to submit them. And it was, it was no rules. The only thing they agreed on was no eye gouging, no biting, no groin shots. They agreed on that in principle, but the understanding was, but if you want to do it, do it. It's up to you. So most people just went in with the punching and kicking and, and he, he beat everyone. And so what I didn't know at the time was he wasn't just this guy. His whole family was into this way of fighting. And the dad was a guy called um, Helio, Helio Gracie. And Helio was about five, seven, very sickly, weak um, lad when he was young. But he learned jiu-jitsu and he modified the techniques to fit his size. So he was routinely fighting, as in no rules fights, bigger guys. So the, but the particular way of fighting was not exchanging punches. He would shooting, get clinched, get the guy down to the ground and then choke him out or arm lock him from there, which is a great strategy because he said, there's no way I can exchange punches. You know, he couldn't 
You know, if you put Mike Tyson with him, who who can exchange punches with a guy that sort of good? But if you get him down to the ground, it's neutral. And if you've got more experience in that field, then you're going to be okay. Doesn't mean you won't get hurt. Doesn't mean you know anything can happen. But the answer would be you've got a greater chance if you learn how to grapple, if you learn how to fight on the, on the ground, you've got a greater chance of surviving that than if you just try and exchange punches. You know, even if you're very skilled at boxing, and that's why, again, you have the weight divisions, you've got a puncher's chance, but the size and strength in that range is always going to have the advantage. But on the ground... Things eat, uh, even up much, you know, much, much more. So that's a very brief history of the of jiu-jitsu and, and why it's come so far in, in quite a short space of time. So my two questions is, one, can you just outline for, for those of us that don't really know what jiu-jitsu is? And my second question would be, Amer- American college um guys and girls do do a lot of wrestling don't they they that's a yeah. big not 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 the wrestling we see on the telly but the proper i think i guess you'd call it grappling yeah college um, gate i think they call it you know it's freestyle wrestling greco-roman wrestling um and i just so wondered if got... if that's why ufc took off so big in the states because you can use different these different disciplines um, it took off because it worked. That was the big thing. So back in the 80s, kickboxing was huge. Um, you had instructors that were millionaires teaching kickboxing. Taekwondo become massive um, because it's like all the higher kicks and that. But there was always this thing about, but does it work? Does it work in a real fight? And back then there was no YouTube. So all you did was hear if a guy was, you know, but again, even back then, a good kickboxer was normally a guy that was ripped, you know, and was, was just a big fella. And then when the UFC come along, and again, you'd have to sort of uh, check it out. It's a skinny Brazilian guy that was just taking these guys down and choking them out. So there's quite a backlash at the beginning. And they all said it was fake. You know, the UFC was rubbish. Um, but at the time, the, the family was teaching, so Hoyce was teaching with his brother, his older brother had set the UFC up. And their academy was really busy, but again, still quite small. But people were saying, but this stuff does work, you know? It's not like Taekwondo where you're doing like point karate. And so they was doing these challenge matches and it was no rules. So a guy would go along to the gym and it was very structured just to say, look, same thing, it's bare knuckle. Um, you fight one of our guys and if you want to stop, tap. If he wants to stop, he'll tap um, and see where you go. And you, again, you get these brawlers in, these street fighters, but they couldn't grapple. And if they could, they only had, like, say, wrestling knowledge. They didn't know about chokes. They didn't know about arm bars. You know, and, and wrestling is about pinning your opponent, whereas jiu-jitsu is about finishing the fight you know, via a choke or an arm lock. So that's what happened. It, it just, people would go and say, it does work. You can't, you, know, you can't argue it. And that's when it, it, it really exploded. Wow. Yeah, you just really summed it up really well. 
So in wrestling, you're just going to hold someone down, whatever it is, the three seconds, and that's it. You've won that round or whatever. But in jiu-jitsu, you've, you've either got to choke them out or get them in so much pain that they, they call it tapping out, don't they? Yeah, you, you tap. It can be done nicely if you know what you're doing. You know that your arm is extended. It won't go any further. So you can tap before the pain is on because you know you're done. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've trained with some wrestlers and they're tough dudes and you can kill someone with a, like a double leg takedown. Some of the throws, if you land on, if you land on concrete, you're not getting up again. So, and, and wrestlers tend to be tough. The, the fitness levels are phenomenal. You know, um, it, there, there just isn't the, the purpose of wrestling isn't to finish the opponent. But if you're half decent at wrestling and you learn jujitsu, then you're, you know, you're a pretty handy guy. Mm. Why is it called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu then? What's what's that distinguish it from? Because the family was from Brazil. So Hoist Gracie, um, bizarrely, the family have Scottish heritage. So this is back in the 1800s. So um, the, the grandfather, I think, come to Brazil. His son then became a politician in brazil and they were settling some japanese migrants and the legend goes as a favor um to the politician a japanese guy called um count coma offered to teach his four sons judo basically but it's kind of judo jiu-jitsu and um he said fine so he taught the four sons this particular martial art but only for a short time but then the brothers all took it upon themselves to sort of enhance it a little bit and then that was it it, it went from there so the two main brothers um carlos and helio i mean carlos had 22 kids and helio had like eight but what they did was they all did jiu-jitsu and uh, they had this huge house in in brazil um and everyone just did jiu-jitsu the whole family and you know again this crazy kind of very unique situation um and then one of the sons horion he came to la in the in the late 60s early 70s um and again a very smart guy he see the potential for teaching what he considered like real martial arts because he saw karate as kind of a Again, not realistic. Kung Fu wasn't realistic. Um, so, yeah, he started teaching Jiu-Jitsu in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and, yeah, it sort of built from there. So, finally, he got a gig in Lethal Weapon. He did the, the fight scene. Remember Lethal Weapon? Yes. When Mel Gibson has the scrap at the end? Um, just yeah, you're talking to someone who considers himself a lethal weapon, John, but who's got no <laughs> memory. He's got no memory. <laughs> but there's a big yeah. scrap at the end. Mel Gibson has this sort of famous fight, and the choreography was done by Horion and Hoyce Gracie. So they kind of got into the Hollywood um, sect a little bit via that. But again, it's slowly built, it's slowly built. And then eventually um, he put the, the UFC, he created the UFC. They did this sort of big free-for-all fighting event. 
and uh, yeah, it went from there. So that's the history. So basically, it's a, a very long way of saying uh, the family was from Brazil. Now I get it. And are we saying then that jiu-jitsu came from Asia? Did, did, I would yeah. say it came from... No, no, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I mean, the history, say our immediate history, uh, you know, if you do my style of jiu-jitsu, would be from um, Camp Coma through Carlos and Helio Gracie, and then they pass on to their sons. I'm just they, thinking of the actual ori- origin. Yeah, Japan, from Japan. Japan. Japan, okay. Yeah. Yeah, got you. Um, oh, I had a burning question for you then, John, and I think I've just gone and forgotten it. So, oh well, it will come to me. A really good question. It was awesome. It was probably the yeah. best question I've ever, I've really ever asked. Deep, thinking deep. Oh, okay. It's profound. What's my favourite colour? <laughs> yeah, why, is, why is orange jam called marmalade? <laughs> so talk us, talk us through your own, your own journey, mate, because um, obviously you've achieved a black belt in this art that that not only has got this incredible history and is so prominent at the moment, um, but also it's, it takes some commitment, right? Yeah, because it was, I mean, it's a little bit different now, but um, when I, so I was still in the core and we had um, adventure training. So I asked, can I go to America? Instead of doing like canoeing, in Cornwall, I'll pay for everything. And this is all part of my sort of unarmed combat dream. And I'll go and train at this, uh, this the Gracie Academy. And um, somehow the OC let me do it. So I went out there for two weeks. Um, and that's where I met Horace Gracie for the first time, um, trained there. So that's 97. But then when I come back to the UK, no one was teaching it. It was, I just did judo. Um, and then a guy from Canning Town, funnily enough, he went out same similar time, late 90s, and he did like an instructor course. So he, he actually lived in the States for a year. So when he came back, um, about 2000s, I started training with him, and he was really good. Um, but because it was difficult, I mean, jiu-jitsu hasn't really taken off. It's only really taken off the last sort of, in a big way the last 10 years so when he started there was just no interest in it we didn't have youtube there was no internet you had to seek a guy out who taught this particular brand of jiu-jitsu so he really struggled it was a real shame um and because you couldn't do any promotions Horace gracie had to come over and promote and he was still fighting professionally so progress in the art was just really slow like i say you had to buy vhs videos or you know buy the magazines it's not like today you know whatever you're interested in you can just shoot on youtube and get get instruction so it took me 16 years till i finally got the black belt um but that was just again really difficult getting to train and obviously other things in your life happen so you can't train and it just took a long time. But even today, you're looking at, say, 10 years, 
if you train consistently, it'd be about 10 years to get your black belt. I mean, some people do it quicker, but it, it, yeah, it's a lot of commitment, a lot of hard work. Um, but, you know, you, you get something, a really credible kind of black belt. And to clarify, is that what you do now then, John? I, I saw on um, your, was it LinkedIn profile? You've, you've got your own, what do you call it, a dojo or? I, t- I teach full time now, yeah. So I yeah. teach jiu-jitsu, but I also teach another, like a, a stand-up martial art called um, Krav Maga, which, ah. you know, that gets um, a few raised eyebrows. But same thing with that. I started learning that in 97. You know, I went to Israel, trained in Israel. Um, but the difficulty was back then, Krav Maga had a greater chance of success than what jiu-jitsu did because no one knew about it. Um, no one was that interested in it, whereas Krav Maga had a little bit more of a commercial appeal. So I had to make a decision. What, what one do I teach? I went with Krav. So I never taught jiu-jitsu until 2011. So, yeah. so then I'm in a fortunate position. I can teach both, although they're, they're kind of different in their approach a little bit. They're both, they're both about self-defense, not sport. Jiu-Jitsu has two kind of branches, one of like self-defense with street and sport. And I don't teach the sport, you know, I teach the kind of the self-defense one, the one that's going to, um, you know, kind of help you out in a, in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the Krav Maga in Israel, that's, is it my understanding? It's a very functional hands-on way of fighting that's taught to the, the Israeli defense force. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't say it's, again, it's taught to the Mossad, it's taught to all those elite units, but I'd say that as a promotional, in the day, a punch is a punch, kick's a kick, you know, and it's exactly the same for them. You might talk, you know, talk to a guy in a special unit out there, how much crab a guy do you do? And you'd probably say, not much, I prefer fishing, because if it's not what you're into, and it's the same with the Israelis, you know, um, it is, it's one of them things. So again, commercially, I'd love to say that everyone that does Krav Maga, and a lot of people phone me, they make a contact, they say exactly the same thing. And if I, yeah, I'd just be honest, it's kicking and punching, you know, it's quite aggressive. It's a kind of like no nonsense martial art. And they go, brilliant, that's just what I'm after. How good would I be in six months? Well, how often are you going to train? Well, once a week, well, you know, and you have to kind of, from a business sense, you just want to look, just come down and do the class and enjoy it. Whereas people that contact me about jiu-jitsu have probably already done martial arts and they never ask that question. They want to start jiu-jitsu and they just want to do it. They don't, not fuss about being good. They just know that this is something that's going to, they're going to be doing for a while. So my crab Maga guy is normally a, it's a quick fix. I had some trouble in the pub. I want to be able to defend myself, but in two hours, and you're like, well, so which is a, a longer conversation, but that's pretty much what I do. Mm. I've remembered my brilliant question, ah, and I've not just remembered blue. it. Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I've not just remembered it; I've extended it to cover wow. a bit more area. My question was going to be, what does jujitsu actually mean? Do we know? Um, the gentle art. Okay. Did you just make that up? 
just looked at i've got my notes written up here yeah. <laughs> you could say anything i i wouldn't know and i'm sure most people at home wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't it is, that's it the gentle way that's mm. like the and people laugh at it because you think well, how can it be gentle you're choking an arm bar on a guy but the difference is if you if you train in it you can do all of this stuff because at the end of the day you know if you're punching there's no gentle way of punching someone you can't control someone by kneeing them in the face mm. with, with jiu-jitsu you can you can make that decision you can finish it or not you can just hold them and control so therefore you know with skill with training you can finish the, the fight in a, in a relatively gentle way because with the striking arts that isn't an option mm. have you ever had to use your skills to defend yourself outside of the gym um well you know i work with young offenders for best part of 15 years and it's like daily it's a daily kind of use of the skills so I did a little bit of door work when I left the Marines um, and you have a few little scrapes and that. Um, but that's really a lot of pushing and shoving. And if you've got a good team working with you and it, you know, it's not a particularly rough door, it's okay. But when I started working with the young offenders, it just blew my mind. The, uh, the level of violence was um, unbelievable. So yeah, when you, when I started out, um, that's all you're doing is, is is looking after yourself or having to initiate a restraint or helping a restraint. Um, so, yeah, I'd say a good solid 15 years of using, really, jiu-jitsu over striking. Because you can't, it's very hard to justify smacking anyone in, a, in that environment. But if you can hold them down, that's much, much better. It's safer for them. It's not safer for you um saves a lot of paperwork so yeah and that's the big sort of debate going on obviously at the moment um you know if you can if you if you spend a little bit of time on on those skills and you're in in law enforcement you won't have to resort to you know uh, okay you know, yeah techniques that are liable to cause more injury you know yeah as long as you're not a racist in the first place well, who knows what was going through that guy's head? But, um, uh, but awful, but awful. Many, many, many accidents do happen simply because guys aren't trained, you know. So, taking that incident, that terrible incident, out of out of the conversation, mm -hmm. many people have been injured and died as a result of poor training, um, and that's something obviously that you know police forces are trying to address you know but um yeah yeah they need to work on their duty of care don't they that's what it is they they, they think this one's a wrong one so therefore i'm completely within my right to use excessive force and of course it's not that's you know that's how like a certain it work i mean you know most if you think about what what is the job here, and the job is to restrain safely, and you know again promote promote life, why is that? Because you won't go to prison for murder. Mm -hmm. So it's probably in your interest to do the job 
as best you can, as safely as you can. So, and if you don't, we, have... we need to remember, John. We're talking about unarmed people. It's not like they might yeah. have, you know, that, that they pulled a weapon out or something. They're, they're just members of the public. Um, well, they, well, they are, you know, regardless of what they've done. If you just say, "Look, I don't really care what he's done. I don't know if he's innocent. I don't know if he's guilty." But if I do something that is going to endanger his life, it is me that is in trouble. You know, mm. I am going to be. You know, not just me, my colleagues are going to be involved. You're doing a, a massive disservice. So, hey, learn something more effective and don't do something you know you shouldn't do. And, again, I've seen instances where you would say, well, that is bad training. They're just doing the best they can, and that's unfortunate. Um, but obviously, the current issue we've got is a guy that was – well, again, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was thinking. Let's, yeah, and uh, that's, um, I think we need to sort of start as a modern society getting our head around this mindset because it clearly is, I don't want to say like it's a huge great thing that every policeman does. Of course it's not. It's, it's obviously a minority, but there seems to be, that, that there just seems to be some psychological thing going on there that one person thinks they have the right to pretty much do what they want to another human being based on, you know, their ethnicity, can we say? Um, Again, it's, there's not a single person would look at that and I just, you know, he, he's doing that in a street and he's been filmed and he can see he's been filmed and yet just continues. It just doesn't, it just defies all logic. Um, but again, that side, I've seen instance where if you see a guy that knows what he's doing, highly trained, gets the same result, gets a, 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 a suspect down, they're controlled safely, suspect's not injured, there's no complaints, you know. And people look at that and quite often those things, and then they hit the internet. It's like, man, check this guy out. That's what you call a cop, you know? Um, and that's what you want, you know? Lots of, there's lots of bad people out there. And, you know, you want the, the police to be safe. But, um, you know, they got to do some training. They got to learn. They got to do this stuff. And then they'll get the positive results. And then, and then everyone's on their side. You know, we're, we're on their side anyway. But when you see stuff like that, it's like, oh, I just wish you hadn't have done that. Mm, of course, of course. Let's talk about the young offenders that you've worked with then, John, because that's, um, as I think I've mentioned to you, my, my degree is in youth work. Wow, okay, cool. And I actually worked with the uh, wonderful Trevor Philpot, who was actually my... Uh, what would he have been a captain back then? He was the guy that gave me my green berry. Right. Okay. Um, cool. And after leaving the corps, he at one point he recognised there was a need to give young people that had fallen foul of the law for whatever reason the same experiences that we had as young marines. So the chance to learn how to wash yourself properly, develop a routine get some pride, pride in yourself, get a bit of discipline, these kind of things. And so he started a, a little, let's call it an institute. It was a, it was a big manor house up on Dartmoor. And 
I very was very fortunate that um, I got uh, my university placement there. So um, I went there, and of course, I had a lot to talk about. I've been traveling all around the world by that point, and obviously, my military background. So right from the off, you could see these young men needed. Can we say role model? Is that? Is I think that someone just they do, but <clears throat> what I what I never obviously appreciated that they're so damaged, and it's not it's not you know the kids that we're talking about aren't just sort of growing up without a dad and lose direction. <clears throat> you know they're um, they're normally brought up in an abusive household. Lots of domestic violence going on, um, neglected. They suffer trauma, so these kids have got you know PTSD from an early age. Um, they might develop sort of borderline mental health problems by the time they're like ten and eleven. Um, <clears throat> the family, what if the family is together at all? It is a, a very unstable family, and likely to have substance abuse going on. So by the, you know, when we get the kids, so I worked in a place called, which is quite a famous place, it was a panorama uh, documentary on it called Medway Secure Training Centre. And it was the first lock-up facility for 14 and 17-year-olds because prior to that, there was nothing. Um, unless you committed, say, a Section 53, like a murder, then you would go to what they class as a local authority care home, secure. So Medway was the first kind of child prison, if you like. And we were just expecting that, that or that was what they thought. The kids would come in a little bit, you know, um, a little bit rowdy, but a short, sharp shock would set them on the straight and narrow. And it's like, mate, you ain't got a clue. When you come in with that level of damage, it, three months getting shouted at and having early beds isn't going to solve those problems. Probably going to yeah. make, it, make it worse. You know, your resentment of authority and the feeling that you're further being punished. And uh, well, they've come from a back then, they've never been locked up, they've never had any boundaries whatsoever. So, you're coming into an environment where all the boundaries are supposed to be in place. So, all you had was massive violence. They even had a riot there, if you can believe that. Um, it was only about 25 kids in the center, it was, it was, it was going to hold 40. It was very unstaffed, and all the staff at the time had no idea what they was taking on. It was it was staff from children's homes and maybe a few sort of ex-coppers from sleepy little villages. You know, you're talking like hardcore gang kids um, from very deprived areas that only knew violence. And the moment you made any challenge to them, it was like, well, what are you going to do? Um, you've got no handcuffs. <laughs> if you want to put me in that room then let's, like, good luck with that. And so when I started work there, um, they'd had the riot. It had been shut down. Um, they had the prison service drafted in to support, and every day was just like a battleground. Um, so it was a very exciting place to work, but at the same time, like I say, you... Um, well, that that's... My jiu-jitsu skills was absolutely... Uh, priceless you know essential yeah but in terms of what you said about the role model mm. it did work 
deep work. I, I should just say, John, for any of them, any people interested listening, the lads that, that Trev took on were almost like cherry picked from the prison at the end of their sentences for, for when the, the observer, I can't, the prison, basically the, is it yeah. the probation service or whatever, they would look at these guys and go, you know, we think this one wants to change. You know, we, we think he doesn't want to go back to crime. So I guess the role model thing was quite appropriate to them. Whereas what you're talking about is people at the other end of the scale that are going into the criminal justice system from, um, they haven't had this kind of epiphany that, that the lads I'd work with had. Um, their, their role models up to them are, are drug dealers, you know, my brother's a drug dealer, my friends are dealers, or, you know, my, my dad's doing 12 years for murder, you know, what a top bloke. So they very, so funny enough, the guys that they did relate to well were the prison, the prison guys, prison officers, because I was heavy handed with them, but they could kind of have good banter. So it's a little bit like the core. Um, and they see me again once they see me doing my, my kung fu fighting skills, they thought he's all right, and you can have a bit of banter with him. Um, but if you sh- if you show any kind of um, if sometimes if you're like a really nice bloke, you're just going to get slaughtered, you know. If they knew you couldn't look after yourself, if they see you as, as someone that would, you know, just yeah, they, they didn't see decency as a good thing. Um, uh, you know, because they just see it as weakness. So, for some of them, that role model was going to be a long way in the distance. Even if you said, "Look, I'm an ex-marine," and those sorts of things. Well, can you have a scrap? Well, yeah, I, I can. And well, let's try that out. And then, okay, he can. Um, but then you do things like you'd make dinner for them, and eventually they'd really appreciate that you play football with them, and then slowly. Um, then you, you, you become okay, you know, you take a few little risks, you give them a few little allowances, which, again, you have to be very careful how you do that. Um, and then you get that trust and then, you know, but then they leave and they go straight back to the environment that they was before and all that good work is, is, is undone. Yeah, my... Yeah, of course. And it's all systemic stuff, isn't it? It's not... We've had a criminal justice system for the last... Well, for whenever... Since its inception, that has obviously blamed the offender for being inherently evil or wrong or whatever. And it's it's not really that long in society that we're starting to understand that no, you're a product of your environment and you're a product of, of your upbringing and you're a product of socioeconomic circumstance, um, which is not to excuse bad behavior, but it is to understand where the behavior comes from. Well, I mean, like I said, I, I worked with um, John Venables, the, mm. one of the killers of Jamie Bolger. Um, so I didn't know it. I didn't know who he was. He came out under a false name and he was about 16 at the time. Um, so he was kind of 
he came in secret. So what was happening with him? He was due to be released. So he was serving his sentence up north, came down to us. Um, and I didn't know it was him. But one of the guys I was working with used to work up north in a secure unit. And it was it was bizarre because their interaction, they did seem to know each other. And I didn't, I didn't know because um, he didn't say anything. It was only about 10 years later I was in a contact with him and he'd had a few beers too many. And he said, you know you work with Venables, don't you? I was like, what are you on about? He said, you remember that lad, Jonathan? And he mentioned a few things. I said, yeah, 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 I know him, yeah, yeah. He said, that, that. And as soon as he said it, because um, if you... If, if you ever look at the, his picture, his mugshot, a very distinctive look about him and his very distinctive eyes. And this lad I worked with, was that was him. You know, he'd just grown up. He was 16 there. He wasn't 10 anymore. Um, and whatever you think of him, but his own background is absolutely horrendous. So, again, it doesn't excuse what he did. But if you look at his backgrounds, you just say, well, no surprise, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he just, him and, and, and uh, Thompson acted out in the most horrendous way. But there's thousands of these kids out there, all with these identical back, uh, they environments. Were, in, in essence, what we're getting at here is, is, is they were taking their trauma and projecting it onto someone else, yeah. who, in, who in this case was what? Was he a five-year-old Jamie Bolger? Was two. Two. Was yeah. it two? Two. two. Horrendous. Yeah, sorry. It was a, I wasn't really putting much thought into that then. But yeah, he was a, basically a baby, wasn't he? A to- yeah, a toddler. Barely yeah. a toddler. Um, but again, you know, it's all right to throw sticks and hate and, and get emotional. That's never going to help a situation no. you know it's, that, that's just that's just unhelpful you've got to look at the situation from a holistic perspective and think right why did this happen and, and what can we do to understand it and, and and try to not just make sure it doesn't happen again but alleviate the trauma that are not uh, that that are that are on these perp that these perpetrators are experiencing and how we do that in a capitalist society is probably a take a smarter person than me to work out yeah i mean it is an intractable sort of problem but i mean the, the funny thing which i didn't know was that they was not in court um because they didn't know if they had done it or not it wasn't a guilty or not guilty it was whether they understood what they'd done was wrong. That was what the charge was. And they was found guilty. Obviously, on reflection, you know, you'd probably say, well, did they? And it's, it is such a, a difficult um, uh, sort of thing to deal with. And, and now having, like I say, when you dealt with years of it, some of the backgrounds the kids have come from, they simply... You could not make it up. You could not imagine, in this country, you could not imagine such a an, an upbringing. You go, well, if that happened to me, I think I'd be pretty screwed up as well. I don't know what I'd be doing. It certainly wouldn't be anything positive, that's for sure. Um, I mean, there was a kid from Sierra Leone. I mean, I've got hundreds of these sort of, um, stories, but 
and he was a very damaged lad, very violent, um, sexually very inappropriate to his male, uh, female staff. He had a little bit of crack about him. You could have a, he was very intelligent. But when he, I remember he took his shirt off and he was just covered in cigarette burns, just all over. And that was um, his treatment as a kid, you know, in Sierra Leone. If he'd done anything bad, they'd just burn him. So again, it's no surprise that a lad like that is now locked up with us and he is not going to improve. He's already in with the, the drugs. He's already in with the gangs. He's already doing awful things. He's already um, acting out with women. His life is not going to get better, you know, as, as try as you might. Um, so, yeah, he'll, I don't know what he's doing now. This is, you know, 20 years ago, but... I, you know, it's, 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 a, it's bleak and like I say it's still happening now there's still like horrendous uh, abuse going on and, yeah um, and it's so easy for it to go on you know it's so easy for it to they call it hidden harm don't they it goes un yeah. under the radar because it can come from anyone it can come from the most respectable looking parents who in secret are taking their inner trauma out on, 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 you know, onto their little one and then hide, you know, hiding it through, like, was it Victoria Climbier, wasn't it? That she was going through horrendous um, abuse. And every time a social worker came around, they would make some excuse like, oh, she's got chocolate over her mouth, but it was to show yeah. that she'd got a fat lip and, and, um, and, and, you know, this kind of, this, this kind of thing. Yeah, these, these families are always known anyway. They're always known to the police. They're always known to social services, the social workers, uh, probation, the doctor. You know, in her case, it got lost somewhere, you know. But in terms of, you know, was that a one-off incident? No, it wasn't. You know, there's it, it's going on sort of now. But what we, we have is obviously... Predominantly the males, the boys that do that, they survive the family somehow. They get to sort of young adulthood, that 14 to 15 age group. They're going to be out committing crime. They get picked up, they get like sent to, you know, and then they just get better at crime because all they are surrounded by like minded sort of individuals. And then it's a real difficult one to, you know. I mean, we had a, had a team from Belmarsh come down. And they do like a lecture and they're, it was very good, but it's lots of, you know, if you commit crime, this is where you're going to end up. And they, they, they had a mock-up of a Belmarsh cell. They show like footage of prisoners getting restrained and, you know, to us, it's, it's horrendous. To them, it, it's no big deal. Half their family was in um, Belmarsh and, you know, if, if it wasn't that, well, I'm not going to get caught. And... Uh, a good, good, good friend of mine said he, he had a lecture from uh, John McVicker and he just said, you know, um, so it's his quote I'm stealing, that prison only scares the middle classes. If you're brought up in, in anything, you know, other than middle class, you don't really care, you know, prison is just an occupational hazard. So it doesn't scare them. They're not fussed. So... You know, it's, you'd like to think a good positive role model and give them these avenues to do good things. It, it boils down to the individual and some mm -hmm. will just say, no, I'm not in for it. 
maybe the odd one or two say yes um, but it's rare especially when the dysfunction is that severe so john are you saying when you work with john venables you didn't realize it was him the whole time you worked for no, him no did you notice were the other were the other um I don't want to call them young offenders. I hate that term, but you know the other young people. The other residents. Residents, yeah. Were, they didn't know him. No, they, and they, was, were probably, he, they were probably too young to. They wouldn't have known who he was anyway. They might have known the case. They wouldn't have recognised him, and I didn't recognise him because he was he was like six foot tall by this time. You know, he wasn't ten. He'd been living in a secure unit, being fed and looked after. Um, so yeah, completely different, but I didn't find him unlikable and he had a little bit of humour about him as well, that he was violent and he, he wasn't violent when he arrived and then what he started doing, he started doing the usual, started pushing the answering back, then that turned into being quite abusive and then eventually he assaulted a couple of members of staff, um, tried to stab one of them with a pencil, you know. Um, but then that was his last week there. And then he went to court. So I was like key working him. He went to court and I thought we'd be back. And that was it, never see him again. But that was his, um, that was it. He was, that was his, he was gone. He was free. But yeah, so yeah, I wouldn't say I, he was no, he was no more violent than anyone else on the unit. So he didn't stick out. But, um, but yeah, but yeah, if you, if you read the background, it was horrendous, horrendous. The whole situation's just, just awful, mm. awful for him. I mean, how do you, to have to go the rest of your life with that in your head of something that you did to a, to a, to a toddler when you yourself were so young and, and, and not knowing your own mind and not obviously they weren't you know by definition they weren't really in control of their where well, they were child they were children you know there's 10 you know and again it's i just i mean i was if i think it's um i was reading saying ian brady so obviously ian brady is is not a nice guy but he just made i read a, a statement where you know he just said i didn't I didn't choose this path in life. And he was the same. He had been brought up in this horrendous Scottish uh, sort of family. And he was being sort of quite philosophical as in like, you know, had that not happened, all those things, of course, are much preferred to have had a good life. Mm. And the choices, you could still say, well, that you made them choices, but, and, and quite rightly so. But a lot of us are lucky We've never, we've not had that level of trauma and misery. You know, your life for a lot of us has been pretty good. And you say, well, that's that's nice for me. There's other people that will just say, I have, I've had nothing but you know, crap. And um, yeah, so as as much as it, as much as you can say, that's the choice you made, and it was a bad choice. And you know, obviously, a lot of people have suffered. It's it. If nothing else, it would make you think differently looking at the background. Mm. Um, so an another lad that I worked with who's in prison now for murder, 
he murdered his cellmate. And he was with us, and he was again, they call him like the Hannibal Lecter up in Scotland. I won't mention his name, but he's in the public domain. Super intelligent lad. He's a real sort of um, barrack room lawyer with laws and regulations and that. But he was, um, I think the mother was a prostitute. The father was like a registered psychopath. He was neglected from birth, the family. Family got taken away. And he had just, he was prostituted as a, as a young boy by the foster cat. Foster, yeah, you could not make it up. And um, so, yeah. So I remember the psychiatrist saying, if you're, if the damage is done from zero to one, you can work with it. If the damage is done from zero to five, it's irreversible. It doesn't matter how many good role models you're going to get. Your life is, has been decided for you based on that five years. And I have yeah, to I'm agree. Not, I'm, uh, I'm not. I'm not in a position to disagree with that. With that. It's, uh, yeah, trauma state, my experience is it stays with you for life and it's yeah. it's an everyday thing. I don't want to say battle because that's that just gives power to it, but it's an everyday thing and you don't end up, well, let's just say it, taking as much drink and drugs as I have mm. if you had the perfect childhood you know um there's there's so much we don't understand about trauma still john you know and and when you look at it when you look at almost like everything that's wrong in society or that could could be better um so much of it stems from childhood trauma as as um as we're now sort of finding out and so many of our if you think of all the good things that happen in your life, how they influence you, it's it's very powerful, isn't it? So if something negative has happened, well, that's going to have the equal sort of effect, isn't it? And, you know, so I worked a lot with the girls. I worked in the girls' unit at another place. So where the boys would always act out in violence towards you, um, unless, you know, unless they realise they couldn't, with young girls, it's always the self-harm. It's always the cutting. It's the eating disorders. It's, you know, the putting themselves out and hanging around with uh, guys they shouldn't, which, again, is just incredible, the level of harm they do themselves. Um, and, again, you, you look back at their history and it's like, well, you know, again, that's not going to change. You, you know, your life is, has been affected so much in this, in this you know, the formative years it's going to be tough to try and you know recover that hopefully you will and there's enough good things out there to help that but again they, they can be so destructive it's it's hard yeah i worked in a in a clinic as a substance misuse specialist for three years and my girlfriend still does that job she works with young people and some of this just like you say john some of the they haven't got a hope in hell. They're talking like teenage girls that, that say, for example, they get pregnant and they're in the full throes of addiction. So yeah. not, whether that's heroin, crack, alcohol, obviously is one of the biggest ones in this country. And even knowing 
and then all the professionals have to kind of try to manage that situation to their best of their I mean, there's only so much that it doesn't matter whether they've got the greatest ability in the world. There's only so much you can do when you're trying to deal with a psychological disorder that's in somebody else's head. That, I can tell you, takes years to, to, to control, not, not, not to solve, just, just yeah. to get it under control. These poor... You know, in the case of this, these young girls that are pregnant and they're still drinking like, you know, a bottle of vodka a day and the professionals just have to stand back and, and they know that baby stands a good, yeah. good percentage. It's going to come out with, is it called alcohol fetal damage? Um, yeah. You know, it's going to be disabled or whatever. And it's, and is it that young girl? Well, you'd be a bit of an idiot if, if, if you thought, you know, they, I mean, they're not really much more than children, are they? Um, well, many of the girls that we work with were, were the products of that syndrome. So, you know, they've already started life. They're now like 15. And their mum has, you know, if she's still alive, was drinking throughout the pregnancy or taking drugs and that. So, again, the child is already disadvantaged anyway. And they're going to repeat what? The parent, you know, and again, these families, it's generational. It's not just, you know, a few wrongans. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was reading one, there was a family that um, spanned like three generations and, you know, a 40-year period was like 78 arrests, I think they said. You know, millions of pounds worth of um, services within the justice system, um, prison sentences, teenage, you know, just one family is just unbelievable. And there is no, nothing is going to stop it. Mm. It would just be another generation, the one we're in now, you know. So we used to give them, they tried it with the, um, giving the kids the, the, the fake babies. And they would just say, so the baby was programmed, very clever, programmed to sort of wake up at two in the morning, want feeding. And all the girls would do, they would just buzz because they're all locked in at two in the morning and give it to the night staff and just say, it keeps going off. Can you just look after it? And they say, yeah, but that's the, that's the point of it. We're trying to, so you don't get pregnant because you realise the, the difficulty that it's like, I don't give a fuck. Just get it out. I want to go back to food. And it's like, well, you know. So... Even stuff like that, really clever, really well thought out. You think that'd be a good idea? That that might. It doesn't. They just they just do what they want to do based on what they know. So, you know, I wasn't looked after as a kid, so mine's not going to be looked up. Well, I'll I'll do a bit of it, but not. You know, the state can look after it. It's uh, so it's, it's a real struggle. <clears throat> well, just it's it's great that there's people like you involved in that system, mate. You know. Bit of bit of compassion, a bit of humanity. Well, I was that's, that's six years ago now. I left that, but I done I done fifteen years of it. I done my I done my bit. I think. Yeah. Well, it where it, it it does wear you out, doesn't it? Um, only it, it didn't bother me. Um, you know, if you if you treat it as it should, do, it's a job. Um, and that you know, as long as you're doing doing what you can. Um, but for me, it was teaching martial arts simply became a 
the priority. That was the one that was the business. I was, I was only working part-time now in the other job. So, yeah, I'd, I'd done enough time to move. <clears throat> John, where can people find you on social media-wise? Or, or do, is there anything you want to promote or say in that department? Um, well, obviously, at the moment, we're on, we're on a lockdown. But um, if we want to do Grace Jiu-Jitsu, um, I'm on www.kravmagarcombat.com. That is my website. I'm on Facebook, John Hegan, uh, John Hegan Academy. Um, so, yeah, you can check me out um, on there. That's, and that's I suggest that. people do. Which part? Uh, just to recap, which part of the Bay country? Ness, it's near Romford. Okay. Can't tell with that accent, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Very subtle, isn't it? Very I'm subtle. leading Essex, in I? <laughs> I'm not I sound posh. I sound very posh. I'm not very good at accents. There was a... Uh, I, I cannot, am I allowed to tell a blonde joke? I'm not sure if blonde jokes are now taboo, but... Politically correct, Chris. Yes, you can. So an ex- Essex... A girl from Essex gets run run run, o- run over, and um, the police arrive on the scene. And they said they say to her, "Did you get his number?" She went, "Number? I didn't even have an, enough time to get his fucking license plate." <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> on, on that note, how was the stand-up career? <laughs> I'm started, yeah. I'm just warming up. Uh, yeah, I'll keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, we've gone two hours now, and it, and, and um, I like my, uh, many of my guests. I know we could talk for probably hours and hours and hours more, and we've just sort of skimmed the surface on, on certainly on your fighting um, career. So let's um, maybe. St- allow if folks if you want to put your questions below the video and then maybe john will join me in a live chat one of our live chats and we will we'll answer them any questions you've got on on the martial arts side of things on the mental health and the the work with um young people that's john has done and then no doubt there'll be lots of marines questions as well so uh yeah john thank you ever so much um Stay on the line. I'm just going to say goodbye to everybody at home. So thank you for watching another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. If you could like and subscribe, that would be wonderful. And if you can consider supporting us on Patreon, that would be great as well. Massive love to everyone. Thank you. If I could just say then, Chris, uh, um, really appreciate the time. Uh, I felt a bit of an imposter, really. You've had some amazing guests uh, certainly done a lot more than me but um yeah really enjoying the stuff that you do and uh yeah keep keep it going really good oh that's uh, yeah you're the second person a couple of days that's taken the time to say that like oh uh, yeah i really appreciate it and as i say to everyone we're all equal on this planet we've all got a story and i i i don't mind to hear them all and i love i actually love hearing them all the trouble is with this bloody new technology is they have things called algorithms that sadly don't don't recognize this story of the ordinary man in the street that or or, or woman in the street um which can be 
so powerful in its in its own right because we've all got a story and um yeah i think that's worth remembering so until the next time friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris thrall instagram chris dot thrall thank you